Midweek Media Watch, Hayden Donnell is in the studio. Kia ora, Susanna. Kia ora, Hayden. You wanted to start by talking about a big political U-turn forced by some transport reporting earlier this week. That's right. Just to give a little bit of background on this, there was a bit of a mini-scandal earlier this week when Thomas Coughlin at the Herald broke the news that the government would be making emissions reductions, its number one priority in an upcoming policy statement on transport for the first time. If that all sounds a bit like gobbledygook to you, a bit, uh, if you're not a transport nerd, then it just basically means that emissions would be a huge factor on whether or not a project gets funded. If it generates very few emissions or none, uh, then it's more likely to go ahead. And at the same, that can be billions of dollars of funding that gets diverted as a result of that. At the same time as that, transport authorities would be allowed, allowed to add bus or bike lanes while they're carrying out their usual road maintenance. At the moment, they just do like-for-like like, uh, uh, maintenance. They replace what's there with what with the same thing, but they'll be able to add bus or bike lanes. Now, uh, this is something that transport advocates have wanted for a long time. Unfortunately for them, it couldn't have happened at a worse time with the roading network devastated by Cyclone Gabrielle and in need of urgent repair and a lot of focus on it. So within hours, uh, Wood was walking back the policy statement and the news that Thomas Coughlin broke and his U-turn was apparently so abrupt that the press release announcing it was written with typos. So here's News Talk ZB's Afternoons host Heather Duplessy Allen making merry about that. He backpedalled so fast, he left mistakes all over his media statement. And while he was happy to talk about it at 7.05 this morning, he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. We asked him to come on the show so he could, you know, talk to us about why he's changed his mind so fast, but he said no. But of course he had to change his mind. He is way out of touch with the rest of us on planet Earth. So one of the spelling errors in Wood's press release was apparently calling the fuel excise duty the fuel exercise duty. <laughs> uh, so however... I'll say in her opinion piece on that, Duplessy Allen actually describes the fuel excise duty as the petrol exercise tax, using that tax word instead of duty. So, you know, two can play at the typo game, Susanna. Uh, in any case, credit to her <laughs> for spotting Wood's errors. Stuff and TVNZ quoted the exercise duty line directly from the release. And to be fair, they did it in direct quotes, so it's unclear whether they were poking fun at the transport minister or they just didn't spot the mistake in the release. Uh, Thomas Coughlin, on note, who broke the original story, kindly did correct Wood's error. He put the correct name for the fuel excise duty in his copy. So do you think the media coverage contributed to the transport minister's back down? I think... It always would have been pretty hard to explain a plan that prioritises emissions reductions when there's so much media coverage of our broken road system. Of course, building roads uh, contributes to emissions, uh, but fixing them and doing them up is a big issue right now. So that's just difficult. It's especially hard when you have commentators like the aforementioned Heather Duplessy-Allen accusing Michael Wood of robbing the pothole budget to pay for cycle lanes. This was the line that automatically got trotted out when it was uh, announced that you could use this usual road maintenance money to pay for bus and bike lanes at the same time. That's pretty dubious at best. In reality, this would just allow transport authorities to change the road layout while they're already paying millions of dollars to fix those potholes. So it means that you can change the road rather than you're robbing one thing to pay for another. Anyway, uh, this is just me putting on my transport commentator hat rather than my media commentator hat. I'll get it off again. Uh, 
I just thought, though, perhaps the idea of prioritising climate action is such a hard sell, not because of anything wrong with the reporting right now, but because of some of our earlier media failures. So our major news organisations, they've all signed up to initiatives like Covering Climate Now, that was one from 2021, which calls for responsible fact-based climate coverage. They talk a big game about believing the science on climate change, and their reporting mostly bears that out. But it really falls down when it comes to actually the tangible climate action that these climate scientists propose, and that's stuff like building dense infill housing close to transport, close to the city centre, or creating these progressive transport solutions. And once anyone proposes those things, you may talk about how you believe in climate change, but the support melts away into tales of acrimony and upset neighbours who don't want an apartment nearby. So I think... If we really had covered climate emergency all throughout as something that really requires real change to the way we live, perhaps it wouldn't be such a wild idea to suggest that we add a bus or a bike lane while we're already spending millions of dollars upgrading a road. There are reporters who cover climate well, though, and many who take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely, and... I would not, I've mentioned them often uh, in this instance. I won't mention all the names, but in this instance, I think credit should go to Today FM's Tova O'Brien for noting the irony with cutting some climate action in order to pay for or to fix damage caused in part by climate change. The perversity here, though, is, of course, that the government is now dropping climate action back down the list of priorities to pay for damage created by climate change. We are the serpent eating its own tail, forever caught in an endless cycle of destruction and rebirth. But at least we have politicians and their endless hijinks, U-turns, misspeaks and self-preservation to keep us entertained. Getting a bit poetic there with the serpent thing, but I, I, I thought that ending's quite interesting. I mean, who could it be that's been a bit focused on politicians' hijinks and desperate face-saving efforts, uh, sometimes over substantive policy stuff? I mean, could it be maybe some of our political gallery journalists at times, uh, ones that even operated at places like News Hub? I don't know. Look, I mean, I love the News Hub style. I love... Uh, I revel in some of the things that they turn up, which kind of humiliate politicians. Uh, But maybe there is a case for reflecting on some of our reporting priorities sometimes and getting a bit more into the heavy stuff like climate change and what it, uh, how it will impact our lives. So on the topic of transport reporting, you also wanted to talk about a headline from RNZ that troubled you this week? Yeah, the headline, Waka Kotahi concludes half-price fares, not enough to lure more public transport users. Now, there are a few problems uh, with that reporting. On the more minor side, the story initially spelled fares, F-A-I-R-S, and gave the wrong date for the report's release that it was quoting from. Look, this is not midweek typo watch. Neither of that, no, those mistakes is particularly consequential, but it possibly hints at some hurried editing, which might inform some of the stuff I'm about to talk about, because the main thing I took issue with is that the article's headline is directly contradicted by some of the data in the report it's quoting from, from Waka Kotahi. So according to the research that the article is based on half-price fears, 
actually have lured a whole lot of public transport users. Between 7 and 8% of the population has made a public transport trip that they wouldn't have otherwise if it wasn't for the fare reduction. That's half price, price public transport fares. And that equates to a third of those who are using the entire public transport network. Around 166,000 of those people would previously have used a car for that trip. So those are just the figures for the whole population. This is even more popular among existing public transport users and about 33% of them, or the people already using the public transport network, have made additional trips uh, as a result of half-price fares. So that headline, Waka Kotahi, concludes half-price fares not enough to lure more public transport users. I wouldn't say that's quite accurate. So is it just that RNT's mis- misinterpreted the report? I, I, I'm not... 100% sure. Not exactly. The report isn't entirely positive about the impact of half-price fares. It says that some users just won't be coaxed onto public transport, no matter the cost, because they see it as impractical or unreliable. Now, fair enough, really. We've seen a little bit of that from Auckland and Wellington lately, haven't we? There has been some quite dire issues with our public transport system, and there's legitimate debate to be had on whether the money that they're spending on half-price fares could be better spent on improving that service. Uh, Stuff like hiring more bus drivers, adding more public transport routes, uh, creating those dreaded bus lanes that we mentioned earlier. But if you actually look it up, you can't see evidence for the claim made by the article's headline and first sentence. Even if there are some people who will never be won over by cheaper fares, it's clear that hundreds of thousands of people have been. And that data is pretty... It's not hard to spot if you actually look up the report. It's all over the place. There are graphs and everything, and it's almost entirely absent in RNZ's write-up of it, and I don't really understand the reason for that omission. So, on another note, it feels like we've seen an explosion in the number of daily news podcasts. This week we've seen a new one launched by Stuff. That's right. This is the latest podcast craze in New Zealand, it seems. People are getting sick of true crime and uh, detailing all of the murders that have happened everywhere in the world, and now they're turning to daily News Roundup. So RNZ and Newsroom have the detail. The Herald has the front page and stuff, as of this week, now has Newsable, hosted by its journalists Imogen Wells and Emile Donovan. So its first episode came out on Monday, and they had a relatively big-name guest on board for the launch, and here's how they introduced him. Well, it's uh, our first show today, as you know, and so our big boss put the harsh word on us. She told us to book a big guest. Huge guest. But the issue was that Harry Styles wasn't available. Mm. So we did get the next biggest name in New Zealand right now. And of course, I'm talking about uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, who joins us now. Kia ora, Prime Minister. Kia ora, how are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. Harry Styles is too busy filling in a census form. Well, it seems like it has a relatively light tone. It does. And you can see that signalled in its name, which sounds a bit like something a tech company would name a parking app rather than the kind of austere, highfalutin, prestige, news-style monikers of its main rivals, you know, the front page and all that. Uh, I mean, this is obviously meant to be a more accessible package, and that's probably its point of difference to lapse into marketing speak briefly, but... 
I mean, it's not just the name that's a bit uh, a bit lighter. Preceding that introduction uh, of Chris Hipkins, the show's hosts, Imogen Wells and Emile Donovan, rattled off what was coming up in the show over a breezy, upbeat backing track. And uh, you might remember, I don't know if you remember, Susanna, Emile Donovan as, as a member of RNZ. He was actually the host of RNZ's podcast, that's right. The Detail. And obviously staff were impressed enough with his work there to poach him from us and listening to this one you can see why he has this kind of easy conversational tone and it suits the tenor of newsable and wells is pretty similar she has a background as a tv reporter for news hub so they both have experience on the mic and experience you know talking into uh, cameras and microphones and that uh, as a result i think the, the product is pretty slick but the show wasn't all jokes and joviality, right? It generated some relatively eye-opening news headlines too. Yeah, that's right. They're, these more informal chats can sometimes actually do that. They get good quotes out of politicians because they let their guard down uh, more than they would if they were getting you know, the conventional radio interrogation from Kim Hill or Guy and Espiner, where they've probably never been more scared in their life. Uh, in this case, uh, Hipkins wasn't scared. He dropped a few interesting tidbits of news, mainly by finding areas of agreement with people he's clashed with. And the first was his usual foe, his main foe, Christopher Luxon. And Hipkins said he actually agreed with the national leader that the public sector is spending too much on consultants. Uh, look, this has been something that, that I have, um, you know, had some concerns about for some time. I do think that the public sector spends too much money on contractors and consultants. No one, uh, I haven't changed my mind over time about that. Now, Hipkins agreeing with the National Party line there. He did go on, you won't be surprised, to deliver some caveats. So a lot of the consultants who have been hired lately, he says, are in areas like transport, where they dominate the industry, or in health where they've formed part of the COVID-19 response, places like Oranga Tamariki as well. So he said calling them just bureaucrats, you know, dry bureaucrats, backroom office staff, that does them a disservice. Uh, but after delivering that partial endorsement of Luxon's views, the Prime Minister moved on to agreeing with one Rob Campbell, uh, who was fired by, his, by Labour from two jobs last week. So Campbell had compared the health system, New Zealand's health system, to a blocked digestive tract, saying it has hundreds of duplicated managerial roles, and Hipkins was pretty sympathetic to that. Uh, so here's Emile Donovan linking uh, that area of waste in the health system to the issue of alleged wasteful spending on consultants and how Hipkins responded. And I know that these are separate issues, but they, they share a theme. It's the sense that your government, the government you lead, is wasteful, that it has a, a lackadaisical attitude towards the allocation of resources. But what do you say to that? Well, I think that's exactly the reason we're reforming the health system. So having 20 district health boards, all with their own back office teams, isn't actually the most efficient and effective way of running the health system. Yeah, so... Obviously, there was a bit of agreement for Rob Campbell there. Maybe his dismissal was really more due to the fact that he breached the public services impartiality rules rather than because Hipkins had too much of a problem with the content of what he was actually saying. So uh, I will say, though, Newsable, it wasn't all hard news. Uh, some of its content was snackable, literally. Uh, the interview closed with the segment opining on the best pie flavour in New Zealand. And on that, Hipkins had some interesting and, depending on your stance, I think pretty damning things to say. 
What is the finest pie in New Zealand? In your I'm afraid. I'm afraid I might be losing your vote on this one. A steak what? and cheese pie would always be my first preference. I don't mind a good steak and kidney pie. Um, <laughs> yeah, steak and kidney pie is good. Uh, but no, steak and cheese would normally be my, number, my first my first port of call if there are no sausage rolls available, of course. Naturally. It's the little bits of gristle that get me in steak and cheese. You know, sometimes yeah. you come across something. Oh, like, no, no. But that's where you've got to get the balance right. You've got to get the right balance of, of meat and gravy. Yeah. That's wisdom from the Prime Minister there. Uh, now, if you hadn't picked that up, there was a discussion of whether steak and cheese is the best pie flavour, and stuff's been pushing the pies hard. It, it has a poll, or it had a poll, asking people to say yeah or nah to steak and cheese being the best pie flavour. I didn't check the results of that poll. If people want to text in with whether steak and cheese is the best pie flavour, do feel free. I'm happy to piggyback on Stuff's uh, hard work on that one. Uh, Stuff also sent a reporter out to Upper Hutt, or out in Upper Hutt, to look for what Hipkins uh, wouldn't name, but he said that he had a favourite pie shop. He's not allowed to endorse businesses, but he said that he had a favourite pie shop, and so they sent someone out to look for it. Uh, a lot to think about in that segment, really, uh, mainly whether New Zealand is ready for a Prime Minister who likes steak and kidney pies. Now, Stuff isn't the only organisation launching a news podcast, right? No, uh, Business Desk, business publication, it's also launched a daily news podcast called Business Desk Today. Uh, not getting a Voyager for most innovative podcast name there but I mean it goes up at 5.30am every morning and it's hosted by reporters Francis Cook, Rebecca Howard and Ben Moore and its launch has been pretty understated in comparison to Stuff's Newsable so not much to report on right now but from what I can tell its main point of difference is that it's extremely short I mean episodes are only 10 minutes long so it's very snackable indeed, it's also not flashy in its production, it sort of sounds more like a, a a very no-nonsense, shortened 6pm news bulletin more than your traditional podcast with, you know, Emile Donovan speaking very colloquially to you. Now, it's it's worth noting that the podcast wars, though, aren't all one-sided this week. It's not just Business Desk and uh, stuff taking away all the headlines, both the headline, both the Herald and RNZ. They ran big banner ads on their homepage for their own podcast in response to Newsable's launch. And the grandfather of New Zealand Daily News podcast, The Detail, did manage to book a big name guest of its own, one whose profile at one point rivaled that of Chris Hipkins. Uh, and that is former Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield. So he's the master of the 1pm press conference, and he was there to talk about Rob Campbell as well, defending the public service's commitment to neutrality. It's very important that public servants in their work are seen to be, uh, both are and are seen to be politically neutral. And for people in very senior roles, that's also... I guess this notion that, you know, what you do in your private capacity and that doesn't mean you can't have conversations and won't have conversations with friends or colleagues in your private capacity. But LinkedIn is hardly a a, a, a sort of a private forum. So even if Bloomfield isn't impressed, Campbell isn't deterred. He stuck to a stance this week, right, calling for the rules on neutrality to change. Yeah, Rob Campbell, he's not one for turning. Uh, I, um, I spoke about Campbell last week as well, you probably remember, and I'm 
I'm wary of making this into midweek Campbell watch, but uh, the outspoken former chair of Te Whatu Order has made more interesting comments, as you say, about the media restrictions governing what public servants can and can't, well, not the media restrictions, the restrictions governing what public servants can and can't say. So in an opinion piece for stuff uh, this week, he described the bosses of the public service as hailing from Pionporniki, uh, drawing apparently a link between their self-preserving silence on matters of politics and how things go in North Korea. Uh, don't speak out against the regime, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, that might not even be the article's most stinging insult, though. He compares the square mile around the beehive where most public sector bosses work to the Vatican City and says the executives there are disconnected from the public they're supposed to serve. So uh, here's a quote just to give you a flavour. Uh, they cannot see, hear, or understand those in Otara, in Titaitokoro, uh, in Tauraafiti, in Cannons Creek, on the west coast or rural Southland. So uh, he's just basically saying they're disconnected. He describes this kind of fake neutrality where these public sector bosses, they stay quiet on matters of politics, but they reinforce an inequitable status quo uh, for those types of poorer and more remote places that they're not connected to. I just want to pause you for a second because we've got a few responses to the pies. Are yeah. you okay for me to take you off track? Yeah, I, I've got more to add on that. Oh, would you like to add first no, or go, go to the first. pies? No, you go to the feedback Okay, here first. we go. Pepper, steak, pie, always. There's two exclamation marks mm. in that text. Nah, exclamation mark. This is from a different telephone number, just so we're all clear. Yeah. Steak and cheese, exclamation mark. So 1970s, actually, my own chicken, kumara, and mushroom pies are really the best. Steak and cheese is close to the best and a worthy choice. Steak is the best standard offering, but a Wagyu beef barbecue sauce pie from Levain, apologies for all the pronunciation here, Artisan Bakery, Reign Supreme, that's Owen. Zed mince pies, the best, tell the PM, <laughs> Neville. I've been instructed by my son, who is arriving from London on Sunday, these are all from different people, so yeah. I'm running them together, to bring two Steak and cheese pies to the airport. Nothing like a good steak and cheese pie. That is from Louise. The pie question is guaranteed uh, media gold, isn't it? Media gold. I had, I, I had a beautiful pie recently. I was down in Rotorua and I've totally forgotten the pie shop. People will be able to text them with what it is. It was a very famous one. It's won a lot of gold awards. I'm pretty sure the pie had some sort of kumara in it. It was so delicious, and I can't remember what the flavours were. I have two children. I basically don't have any brain left. I want to say what my favourite pie, my pie flavour is, Can Susanna. Because I, I need to as well, but you go first. But my, I think mine is a very controversial choice, and I go for a chicken or a butter chicken pie. I love a butter chicken pie. That's two great New Zealand meals just there, butter chicken and pie, all in one, wrapped up in one. That's fusion cuisine. That's fusion pie cuisine. Mm. Before I go, here we uh, before I say my pie, eel pie mash and green sauce, pea sauce, a pie to die for. That's from Nat. Okay. Well, if someone can tell me the great place in Rotorua that I was, then that would be great oh, as well. Oh, let's see what happens. But we I'm are, just a potato top pie. What? All the way, <laughs> all the time since, uh, since primary school, and the pies in those days were called Big Ben. Uh, Big Ben is a classic. Classic. Now, I'm sorry, because I don't remember where we're up to, we're up so to please Rob get Campbell. us back. We're okay, up to Rob you. Campbell, and, you know, he <laughs> he was a, 
he was responding to so Ashley Bloomfield's point is that uh, if you just have public sector bosses piping up on every topic, it would destabilize the public sector. Politicians would fire them uh, when they, you know, if they say something opposed to their policy and they get into power, and also it might breach people's trust in the public sector because if they keep saying political things, then that'll get a bunch of the population offside. And, and uh, so Campbell, that's the criticism there, and it's pretty compelling to be honest, but Campbell really rejects the idea that public servants speaking their mind would lead to instability, and he advocates a few adjustments to the public service code of conduct. And one of them is allowing people to speak their minds and debate difficult issues without having to assume uh, that future political winners are so prejudiced, this is his words, and narrow-minded as to refuse to work with anyone with a different opinion to theirs. And so, I mean, it does seem like in the media there's almost this unexamined assumption that when politicians take office, they'll have to immediately take the broom, clear out anyone who's expressed discomfort with one of their policies. That hasn't necessarily been the case in the past. And I made a similar point, I think, last week about the definition of neutrality. Uh, and uh, it's is it just to make never make politically biased statements or is it being willing to speak your mind on any issue regardless of your political allegiance or to put it another way to tell the best or tell tell the truth as best you can without fear or favor so in journalism i advocate for that approach more than the other one i mean we say public servants will inevitably be fired if they start speaking out well perhaps politicians could be more accommodating of principal criticism and just to conclude this bit, I think that would have an impact on the media as well. If a, The media has been pretty excited, I think, by Rob Campbell actually saying stuff in a clear way that has a clear point of view and makes sense to them. And maybe it would actually um, have some benefits to the media if that was more commonplace. And uh, we could actually think about what true neutrality means, whether it's never saying anything political or whether it's just telling the truth regardless of your political allegiance as you see it. And because I, I just also wanted to touch on Simon Wilson at the Herald because he's backed Rob Campbell. Is that a fair way to Well, yeah, he's pointed that? out that the chairs of Crown agencies are political appointees on fixed-term contracts, and so he thinks it's a bit farcical to pretend they're politically neutral. So he says, if we appoint the Rob Campbells of this world and make them subject to recall, we should expect them to speak the truth to us and as they sit, well, speak the truth to us as they see it, and we should respect them for it and criticise them when they fail to do it. And I think it is a bit, it is a bit funny because right now we're, having, we're seeing Ruth Dyson and Steve Mahari getting in hot water for political comments that I've made as a deputy chair of Fire and Emergency New Zealand and the chair of Pharmac, respectively. And these are people that were in Labour for years and not only that, served as Labour ministers. So it is a bit funny seeing them getting in trouble for betraying their political allegiances. I mean, if Christopher Luxon becomes Prime Minister, do you think he's going to enter the office with any illusions about exactly whether him and Ruth Dyson see eye to eye on every political value? Probably not. Um, so, yes. I mean, I see the arguments on both sides here, but I do think that maybe there could be a bit of a de debate about how we're defining neutrality here and whether we could come up with a more workable definition. I'm interrupting you again. Any pie without cheese. It's a short, sweet, sharp to the point text. The other one, please mention pavilion, make delicious, gluten-free beef and beef and cheese pies. Sounds like someone from pavilion. 
it sounds like someone who, yeah, has vested interest, vested Mm. interest. Anyway, sorry, they're tumbling in, they're tumbling in. Now, the news podcast space isn't the only one getting, shall we say, crowded. There's also a new entry to the free speech-loving digital radio sector. That's right. Just quickly, Voices for Freedom, the anti-vax group that are coming to the internet near you, uh, launching Voices for Freedom Radio, pitching itself as a true haven for free speech and a place where you can really discuss the information that the mainstream media is keeping from you. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's pretty much the exact same marketing line that Sean Plunkett's online radio venture, The Platform, started with last year. So this is the platform for audiences that think the platform isn't committed enough to free speech? Pretty much, yeah. And that's the headline on the spin-off. So they said, there's now Voices for Freedom online radio for people who find the platform too woke. And that's the headline on a piece by Duncan Grieve, who called Sean Plunkett at the platform and came away with some choice quotes, including him calling uh, the rival venture Rabbit Hole Radio and its hosts and founders as people who are, quote, butthurt that I am not here for their specific ideas. Hmm. What's he talking about exactly? Uh, That specific ideas that he's referring to there, I believe, are the anti-vaccination rhetoric that you'll probably hear on Voices for Freedom Radio. So, I mean, uh, Plunkett did once offer the prominent anti-vaxxer Chantal Baker a job after coming away impressed after an interview with her, but uh, to his credit, he's re- he's been relatively firm and consistent in his, or he has been firm and consistent in his personal support for COVID vaccinations. And that's obviously rubbed a few people the wrong way in the free speech crowd. And uh, he also, Sean Plunkett also says he stopped hiring Rodney Hyde for fill-in spots on the station after Hyde booked Voices for Freedom spokespeople several times for interviews, disclosed on air that he's a member of the group and generally didn't seem interested in discussing topics other than vaccinations. Hyde is one of the people departing for Voices for Freedom Radio, as is the platform's veteran newsreader Paul Brennan. So as the spin-off puts it, Voices for Freedom Radio is a place for people who have been deplatformed by the platform. I'd just name a few other people that are going to be there. The aforementioned Chantal Baker obviously didn't take the job at the platform. She's going to be on Voices for Freedom Radio, along with the former TVNZ newsreader Peter Williams, who's been hosting a show called Reality Check Radio for the Taxpayers Union. And that, that organisation, the Taxpayers Union, says it has no role in funding Voices for Freedom Radio.